It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, June 12, 2014. Thank you for being a part of the program tonight. Look forward to hearing from you. The number to call is 877-381-4567. You can email questions at collegeview.com. If you're watching us live from thevirtualbiblestudy.com tonight, you can sign in the chat room at the bottom of your video feed and chat with other listeners on the program tonight. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Looking forward to our discussion. I am looking forward to the discussion tonight, and um, I'm looking forward to the discussion next week as well. Yeah, next week we we have a converted Muslim who plans to... to talk with us on the virtual Bible study. Uh, and, well, I think he has some concerns about anonymity. Yeah. Uh, and so we won't say too much about that other than uh, a man who's been converted to the truth uh, from Islam to uh, a true faith in Jesus Christ. He's a member of the Lord's Church. Uh, will join us on the virtual Bible study. So he's maybe facing some repercussions. Right? Possibly, because he seemed to express some concern about Keeping anonymous. We'll look forward to that discussion to next week. Uh, that would be uh, June the 19th, but we're looking forward to the June 12th program. That's tonight, uh, yeah. an important discussion tonight. All right, Jay, we're going to talk tonight about the consumption of alcohol. Yes. Uh, intoxicating drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really an important discussion. Uh, most everybody, I think most all religious people that I've ever known of, condemn drunkenness. Uh, uh, that's not an issue. Cut, that's uh, pretty cut and dry. Yeah, uh, and, and it's easy to produce a number of Bible verses that would condemn drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not the issue. The issue is more the idea of social drinking. That's mm-hmm. that's a, a handle that's been put on it, a sort of drinking in moderation. I actually think social drinking probably is a is a bad misnomer because I think drinking is antisocial behavior because okay. it causes all kinds of trouble in society. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I think people know what we mean when we refer to social drinking or so-called drinking in moderation. Yeah. Drinking but not becoming drunk. Drinking mm-hmm. intoxicating beverages but not becoming officially drunk. Mm-hmm. And so that's the topic we want to talk about tonight. All right. 877-381-4567. You sent out some questions earlier today. You want to talk about those now? Yeah, or take them as we go? yeah but before we get to that, Jacob, I'll, I'll, uh, some some of our own brethren, that, uh, many that we respect and hold in high regard, uh, I am concerned are giving a mixed message on this subject. Uh, uh, and, and I believe we need to be... Uh, affirmative and definite, be able to tell people what we the, the the truth of the scripture without reservation. Right. In First Corinthians chapter fourteen and verse eight, Paul was talking about speaking in tongues, but he made a point. He said, "For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle?" Yep. Now he was applying that to the question of, of uh, speaking in tongues and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a principle there. If, if when we teach and preach the gospel. We are not certain and definite about 
important conclusions. We're giving an uncertain sound. People won't know what to do. I knew, for instance, of a fellow who uh, he was a preacher and, and he preached on dancing. And at the end of the lesson on dancing, he said, uh, you're just going to have to decide for yourself. Yeah. You know, well, when he did that, of course, he was giving license to all the young people to go to dances. And they did. Yeah. You know, and, and so he gave a very uncertain sound. He he didn't dance himself, but he he argued that he didn't know that he could say that it was that that modern dancing was absolutely wrong. Right. You'll just have to decide for yourself. Well, that's just almost like buying a ticket to the prom for the young people because right. I mean they would take that immediately and say the preacher said didn't say it's wrong. I'm going. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm concerned that. In our teaching and preaching, we need to be definite on moral questions like dancing and like drinking alcohol. And so I, I hope we can be very affirmative in our conclusions. There are a lot tonight. of people that are saying, well, I, I can't condemn it. I'm not, I don't want people to drink, and I'm not promoting it, but I can't condemn it. And that's what I'm talking about. That's that's yeah. the approach you, you that I'm concerned about. You basically condoned it in, when you said I, you can't I, condemn I'm, it. I'm, I mean, I, I, you know, we don't want to charge them with doing something that they're not doing. They're not condoning it necessarily, or they're not encouraging it. But, but in effect, this it, the, the effect is, and I think everyone has to realize that that's so, that if, that if a person is tempted to try it and I won't condemn it, then I'm basically signing off on them using alcohol. Yeah. And and so that's got to be a concern. I think that's got to be a concern. But now, if the scriptures don't condemn it, then we don't have any business condemning well, we it. We can't so bind we'll... what the scriptures don't bind. But that's if right. we can make a definite conclusion on an important question like this, I think we can. We need to take a stand. Then we need to take a stand. That's right. All right. Look forward to hearing from you tonight on the program. Important discussion. Uh, before we go too much further, we've got Steve behind the controls. Now, Steve's from Jennings, Florida. He came in from out of town, and I uh, recruited him tonight. And that seat is hotter than it's been in a long time over there. I think uh, Steve's a little bit uh, a little bit apprehensive, but he's doing a great job. So thanks, All Steve, right, for being Steve. here. Thanks for running the board. Yeah. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, uh, looks like everything's going good great. so yeah. far. Yeah. Uh, we want everybody who's listening to join in. We'd be glad to uh, We want your participation by way of emails, questions at collegeview.com. In the chat room, of course, it's best if you can identify yourself with a name. Uh, you don't have to give your full name or you can give yourself a nickname, uh, but let us know so we can kind of reference your comments you in the chat room. You can keep up with the Joneses in the chat room tonight. B. Jones is in the yeah. chat room. Yeah. So and chat. Randy in Michigan's in yep. the chat room, and I wonder how Randy's doing on the Virtual Bible Study No TV Challenge. Oh, that's right. We had the uh, No TV uh, Challenge. Yeah, but real, Randy's the only one who told me that he took up the challenge. But it's not too late. You can start now, yeah. Yeah. And, and you can report next week that you're one yeah. How's week it going, Randy, on the, on, no the, on the No challenge. TV Challenge? All right. Uh, Okay, so to our update list earlier today, I sent out questions. We always do that. Uh, today I was a little late, Jacob. It was. Uh, oh, after. Randy is still on the wagon. No TV. Way to go, Randy. That's Way to go, Randy. That, is that three weeks now, I think? I think so, yeah. All right, Randy. Hang in there, man. You're doing good. Great job. You're over the hump now. You are. You're, yeah. you're almost detoxed. detoxed there. Yeah. Uh, to, our cha- to our email update list today, I sent out these questions. You can get on our email list by sending us a, a, just a simple message to questions at collegeview.com. Remember the peculiar spelling of collegeview, questions at collegeview.com. And just say, add me to the list. We'll do that. And then on Thursdays, we send out our update telling you what our topic is going to be. And to our update list today, I sent these questions. Number one, do you agree or disagree with these arguments that are often made in defense of social drinking? And again, we're not going to keep redefining social drinking. I think everybody knows what we're talking about here. So some people make these arguments. Do you agree or disagree? 
One, all wine mentioned in the Bible was intoxicating, therefore any reference to drinking wine necessarily indicates drinking alcohol. That's one argument that's often made. Another argument that's made in defense of social drinking is, in Bible times there was no way to preserve unfermented grape juice, therefore any reference to drinking wine necessarily indicates drinking alcohol. And finally, Jesus made intoxicating wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, Thus, he endorsed social drinking. That account's found in John chapter 2, and we'll be looking at that. All right, that was question one. In other words, do you agree or disagree with some common defenses that are made by people who are trying to justify social drinking? Agree or disagree? Tell us why. Number two, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, it says bishops must not – this is actually verse 3. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 3, says a bishop must be, quote, not given to wine. But verse 8 says deacons must be, quote, not given too much wine. Yeah. Does this difference in wording imply an acceptance of social drinking for deacons and others in the church? Okay. Number three, 1 Timothy 5.23, in which Paul told Timothy, quote, use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Does that prove it's okay for Christians to drink socially? And then finally, number four, if you oppose social drinking, what is your strongest argument against it? And then the contrary, if you agree that social drinking is acceptable, what's your strongest argument in support of it? All right. So that's why we're going to go tonight. Likely in the chat room we'll have people on both sides of the issue tonight. We'll look forward to hearing from you and what's your opinion and your understanding of the Scriptures because we do want to know what the Scriptures teach. As we said at the beginning, We don't want to bind where the Scriptures have not bound. We do not want to condemn what the Scriptures do not condemn, nor do we want to condone what the Scriptures uh, do not condone. So we want to know what the Scriptures say tonight. We want your understanding and your uh, your input. So we look forward to hearing from you in the chat room and email or over the phone tonight. All right. All right. Let's go right at it. First question. We're going to have a lot to cover, so we better get into it. The argument is made that all wine mentioned in the Bible was intoxicating, therefore any reference to drinking wine necessarily indicates drinking alcohol. Uh, Eric uh, sent in a response by email. He says he disagrees with that, and I do too. He says sometimes wine refers to fresh-squeezed, non-fermented juice. So the word wine in the Scriptures has multiple meanings. Yeah. And that makes the discussion a little more difficult. Yeah, it's true in both the Old and the New Testament that the word that is commonly translated in our English Bibles, wine, can mean, it can mean a drink that you could get drunk on, in other words, alcoholic wine, or it can mean just what we would refer to as grape juice. In our common use, you know what we're talking about. If I say wine, you know I'm talking about alcoholic drink. If if I'm just referring to juice, I call it grape juice. I don't call it wine, but that's not true in the Bible. Now, just to give you a couple examples, uh, in the Bible, the word wine can mean something you could get drunk on. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's a wine that you could drink and get drunk on. Right. Paul says don't do that, by the okay. way. Okay. All right. Now, in other places in the Scripture, we can confirm that the word wine is being used to just talk about what we would call grape juice. Mm-hmm. For instance, I think the best place is Isaiah 65, 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. Notice, the new wine is in the cluster, still in the grape, and it's called wine. Mm -hmm. Now, we'd say that's juice. 
but it's clear that biblically it could be referred to as wine. So what that tells us then is when we read in the scripture uh, the word wine, we've got to let the context bear out whether it's intoxicating wine or what we'd refer to as grape juice. All right, and our listeners uh, don't uh, disagree with that. Yeah. Even even issue listeners that are on different sides of the issue here do not disagree that the Bible does allow uh, for the wine to have multiple uses. Yeah. Meanings. Now, I don't think that a lot of people uh, of the world really understand that. And I, I think many people, if they picked up their Bible and they found the word wine in it, they would assume that the usage is like us, meaning intoxicating drink, but it's not. And that needs to really be pressed. Okay. That the word ha- it, it could mean either, and the context has, context has to explain which okay. is under consideration. Okay. All right? Good. Now. Next question you have. All right. Um, it's argued that people in those times, now we're talking about 2,000 years ago and when, when Jesus lived in the first century when, when the church began and early Christians, and then, of course, we're talking about times even before that in the Old Testament. So that long ago, people did not understand. They didn't have any method or means to preserve uh, unfermented grape juice. I can go over here to Kroger, and I can buy all the unfermented grape juice. I, want. I can buy grape juice, fresh grape juice, uh, concentrated grape juice, uh, what kind of juice you want. You know, you got I can get it in, in multiple forms. And there's all kinds of sophisticated bottling processes and canning processes. And they didn't have that back then. And so the argument is that there is no way to preserve back then. There was no way to preserve unfermented grape juice. And therefore, anytime you read the word wine in the Bible, it had to mean right. a fermented grape juice, a wine with alcoholic content. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, most everybody that I talk to believes that, but actually that's not right. Yep. Uh, that, and there's, and there, I think there's evidence to prove that it's not so. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just one way. There were multiple ways that they had yeah. figured out how to preserve, uh, the, the grape juice. You know, we have the same issues today. People want to preserve their foods and, uh, and people have lots of different ways to preserve. Yeah, yeah preserve you've been food canning great green beans this week. Already been canning those, yeah. And you know how to do it. And they and they can sit on the shelf for for years and uh, and still be good. Well, okay. maybe not year. I don't know. They'll they'll sit there for a long. They time. They have a shelf life, I suppose. That's but right. you, for if a long our kids time. have a say, they'll sit there for years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. I got a book here, and I'm sure that many of our listeners have probably seen this book. Uh, it's called Wine in the Bible: A Biblical Study on the Use of Alcoholic Beverages by a man named Samuel. Bacchiochi. Yes. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. He's a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, and so we wouldn't agree with him on everything. But uh, Yeah, but he, he has a lot of documentation here. And, and in that book, he describes fi- at least five different means that mm-hmm. people of ancient times knew how to preserve unfermented grape juice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I just want to walk through how much time we got before. Well, it's time for a break. Well, let's take this break, Jacob. And when we come back from it, I just want to walk through what these methodologies were. All right. Five methods, uh, potential methods that they could use for preserving grape juice, keeping it from fermenting. Uh, just to prove the fact that uh, if we read wine in the Bible, it doesn't have to be alcoholic. That's the purpose of this discussion is that they were drinking non-alcoholic uh, grape juice in the New Testament era. And we have uh, proof that uh, that they could preserve it at, at, to, to be non-fermented. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. 
These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great, I'll see you there. Being pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. It just might find that it's easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College of Church of Christ. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Treat each day as your last. One day you will be right. While we are postponing, life speeds by. Whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. You can't accomplish anything by doing nothing. More than sound is required to make a sound argument. On the road to heaven, be sure to check the map regularly. Many know their rights, but ignore their obligations. Man, wish I'd said that. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And we're back on the program tonight. Uh, we welcome you back to the virtual Bible study as we talk about uh, drinking alcohol. Is it uh, forbidden in the Scriptures? Is it uh, condoned in the Scriptures? We want to know what you think. Let us know your thoughts. We're going to go to a call. and didn't get a chance to uh, get the caller's name, but caller, welcome to the virtual Bible study. Hi, my name is Brendan. Hey, Brendan. Appreciate you calling. Where, hey. are you, where are you calling from tonight? I'm calling from Dahlonega, Georgia. All right. Well, glad to have you here. Yeah, and it's, it's nice to be here. And uh, I, I got to admit, my internet connection wasn't good enough to be keeping up with your program, but I did want to put my two cents worth in on it because I actually have uh, the opposing view to yours. Okay. On this matter. Sure. Well, we're and, glad that uh, we're glad that you called. And and so honestly, I don't know where you were at in the discussion. Well, we really but, just um, got started, uh, and we, we were just the first point. The simple point we made was that. When you read the word wine in the Bible, it does not necessarily mean intoxicating drink. Uh, sometimes it me- meant the same thing that we would refer to as grape juice, and that you have to allow the context to, to sort of indicate whether intoxicating wine is under consideration or uh, fresh grape juice. Well, I've heard one of your previous programs. On, I'm, a, I'm a big listener, and I want to compliment you on the work that you guys do. Uh, you and you and I are on the same page on on pretty much everything, but this is one of the few issues that we uh, have differences on. But um, I, I heard a previous program on drinking alcohol. Um, you had a young man that was on the Sing Off who called, and uh, oh yeah, right. I remember that show, yeah, and right. I think that the scripture that you used in that instance to prove that wine could mean grape juice uh, was in Isaiah. Is that right? Right, Isaiah sixty-five verse eight. Uh huh. Right. I apologize. I certainly don't want to sound. I want to sound loving in everything that I say, but I believe you guys uh, had an error there because uh, if you read that passage, it says new wine still in the grapes, and then you took that to mean that any time it uses the word wine, it could mean uh, you know wine with alcohol. But you left off the modifier new. Um, there, specifically, it says new wine was in the grapes. And anytime it refers to grape juice or wine early in fermentation, it seems to use the term new wine. Can you and, uh, can you can you uh, verify that? Uh, that that's not what I understand to be the case. Can you verify that if it was non-alcoholic wine, it would always say new wine? I can't 
say every time that it that it refers to non-alcoholic wine, but I'll point you to Matthew 9 where it says, you know, um, the parable that Jesus tells about the uh, about the wine skins. Mm-hmm. And um, he does say new wine in that instance, and that, I think, actually, him using that parable is proof that they drank alcoholic beverages at that time. Um, well, there's no doubt but, that people did drink alcoholic beverages. Right. That's that's but, not in question at all. Right. Our right. question is whether... party did. Excuse me? But that Jesus and his party did, um, because he's speaking to people that were with him there, and he's re- referencing wineskins. And the reason that that parable makes sense is because a new wine skin is flexible and will expand with the gases that are given off in fermentation. So that's yeah. why you need a new wine skin rather than an old one. Right. Jesus. Um, yeah. Well, again, G- Jesus made that point uh, in his teaching, but that that does not confirm whether they did or didn't drink that i mean it, that he, he was making a point from a known from a known fact and that is if you put fermenting right. wine into an old grape uh, into an old uh, wine skin it'll burst the wine skin that but that you, ask, you, you couldn't conclude from that that jesus drank or didn't drink of that yes, fermented wine would he use a subject that was a sin in one of his parables if, uh, for example, if he was here today, it's a silly comparison, but if he was here today and he said, when you smoke crack out of your crack pipe, make sure that the crack pipe is nice and clean. It represents a clean conscience or something. That that wouldn't make any sense because it's it's a sin to do that. And he wouldn't use that in a parable if it was something that was sinful. Well, possibly. I mean, I understand your point. Yeah. I, I don't know if that, that – I don't – but it would be, a, I think, a huge leap to go from that to say – that Jesus consumed such wine. Right. I mean, it was an understood well, principle. It was an understood principle that he was using to conclude, to, to make a spiritual point. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you, I think you'd be taking a huge leap there to say that proves that Jesus himself partook in intoxicating wine, or encouraged others, or endur- endorsed others to do so. Well, I, I would never encourage anyone to take it up, and I, I don't, I don't preach that but um but i believe that jesus tells us uh in in luke and in matthew that he drinks wine uh, i don't think you need the the parable that we're talking about to prove that he drank wine i believe he tells us that he does um where would that be well now that would be i'm sorry i'm sorry go ahead i'm sorry go ahead Brandon. I, I interrupted I was say in luke 7 and in matthew 11 when he says john the baptist came um you know not eating and not drinking and then he draws the comparison to himself, who comes eating and drinking. And by that, he doesn't specify alcohol, but clearly he means alcohol. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a counterpoint to make. Because if he didn't drink alcohol, just as John the Baptist didn't drink alcohol, then there would be no comparison to make. I, I, I disagree again. I think that they, in that text, Jesus was saying John was a well, he, he was outside the social circle of Jerusalem. Uh, he was out in the wilderness and he was teaching and preaching in a completely different environment. Jesus attended the feasts of the Jews. Uh, but to say that, to necessarily argue that the drinking he mentions there is absolutely the drinking of alcohol, 
I do not agree that that can be confirmed. Jesus was contrasting the different lifestyle, the different circumstances in which John was doing his teaching and Jesus was doing his. And when Jesus said that he was engaged in in eating and drinking, he simply meant that he attended the Feast of the Jews, something that John did not do. But again, I would not I would not agree with your conclusion that that means that he necessarily drank alcoholic beverages. Right, and and I would make that conclusion though based on what the Pharisees are saying about him. They're making exaggerations about John because John fasted. They said, well, he must have a demon, and they made and they made exaggerations about Jesus because he drinks. We call him a drunkard, a glutton, and a drunkard. He eats. So we call him a glutton. He drinks. So we call him. A well, would that be true? Was Jesus a glutton or a drunkard? No, it's not. But no, it's and so in other words, they were. Dr- in other words, Jesus is saying he is he is he's responding to the false accusations of the Jews uh, in regards to him. I I think I think it'd be a bad misinterpretation to take that to mean that Jesus was acknowledging that what the Jews accused him of was true. Oh no, but. I, I don't think he is. I think. But you're, saying, has, but you're saying because they referred to him as a drunkard that he was therefore consuming alcoholic wine. Right. I believe that's what he's saying. He's saying I, I'm I'm eating and I'm drinking, and you're taking it to the extreme and saying that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Well, you know, I think it's the same for the food as it is for the wine in that comparison. Okay. I, I just would I just would strongly disagree with that conclusion. I. I, I do not think that that's a necessary conclusion from the information that's supplied in the text. Um, uh, we obviously going to disagree on that, but I, I, I just cannot right. come to that same conclusion. Uh, Brendan, I've, Aaron is in the chat room, and I don't, I don't think you're able to see the chat room more. He says, uh, no wineskin will stretch to accommodate the gases given off during fermentation. He says they aren't balloons, and he says the gases that come off are considerable. How would you answer well, that? I'm very, I'm very familiar with that. And um, how, how, do you, how do you answer that? Well, the point is that they can stretch to allow for some. I'm sure they have to be released at some point. But the the, the comparison that he was making is that an old wine skin is brittle, and any expansion will bust it, and you'll lose all your wine. You know, um, so I, I think that it's just a matter of it will expand, so that I'm sure that it has to be released some gases. I I don't doubt that, but. Um, yeah, I'm very familiar with winemaking and all that. I'm, I'm actually in the wine business. But, you know, there was a point uh, where I argued when I was a teenager. I can remember vividly arguing against any consumption of alcohol. But then as I read this, it seems very clear to me how often wine is referenced and, um, and that it was something that they drank then. I mean, um, when it's when it's told to you know take some wine for your stomach or, or for as a medicine, um, you know if it was a sin to drink any wine, it would be a sin to drink any wine. Um, I, I, I disagree with that. We're going to deal with that verse a little later yeah, in our program, I, but but uh, uh, no, I'm getting you off your track. And that's I'm sorry okay. About no, Brandon, I appreciate you calling. So I've got you. I've got uh, my notes here. I've got uh, two arguments: uh, the new wine skins, uh, old wine, new wine and old wine skins uh, argument, and then the accusation of Jesus as a glutton and drunkard. Have you got? Would uh, you make other arguments in support of it? Um, just, uh, just the repeated references to wine. I don't believe that you can call grape juice wine. I don't believe that they are calling grape juice wine. Uh, when he turns water into wine at the at the at the wedding ceremony, 
it's it's a wedding in that time would be you know with alcohol with wine um and when i I heard your argument in the past that um you know that the people were well drunk but that means they've drank a lot that doesn't mean that they are becoming drunken you know um necessarily just the the words there mean they've drunk a lot you know uh they're well drunk and um and your argument that that they he would have made grape juice doesn't seem to make sense to me um it's just you know honestly when i hear any debate and the debates that you guys have done with people who don't believe exactly as the bible says it's it's always so clear if you take a step back to me anyway that you're saying here's what the bible says and then someone else says but if you tw- you have to change this word this word may not always mean that and this may mean something else and i'm always want to be on the side of here is what the bible clearly says just simple it says this and any reference to wine it usually says wine or what i've found is if it's talking about something that's not a fully alcoholic wine it says new wine and I like that nice, simple approach. Well, yeah, I think, Brendan, you're 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 at odds with almost all commentators on the subject uh, when you argue that only the expression "new wine" means grape juice. Uh, I, I think we could find just scores of commentators and and experts in in the language and in the culture of the first century who would differ with you in that conclusion that it must say new wine if it intends to mean grape juice. I, I just that's that's not my understanding at all. And I, I think you're well, basing a position upon something that can't be sustained. Okay, well the reason I brought that up was because you're basing your argument that the word wine could be used to mean grape juice on that verse in Isaiah and that verse in Isaiah says new wine. So I think that there's a difference there um and in your in your last show about this or maybe it wasn't the last but in that show that i heard um you you seem to leave out the new part and i and it bothered me that you took from that verse you said wine could mean grape juice well the word it is the word wine it is the word wine it's not he doesn't say the new juice that's in the grape he says the new wine he calls it wine and so, I mean, I think the point's established that the word wine there is is associated with grape juice, clearly. And and so that's the only point. Where we're not trying to pervert that scripture. It, right, it certainly right. says new wine, and that's the way we read it. But it uses the word wine in, an, in a reference that is clearly not fermented wine, not alcoholic wine. And that's the point. That's the only point we're making there. And and right. uh, again, I think the, the the overwhelming majority of those who comment on this word, its meaning and application in first century culture, would agree that the terminology there is is it's not as distinct. Certainly not as yeah. distinct as our as our modern English usage. Yeah, and and when I hear the rest of this show, when I'm able to listen to it on on iTunes, I'll I will definitely look forward to hearing you guys show if there's any other places where you can show that it's definitely grape juice that uh, let, let me give you Aaron in the chat room makes a has yeah. just put in a comment that is interesting he said even new wine is not necessarily unfermented in Acts chapter 2 at verse 13 uh, when the when the 
apostles were speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, and uh, some were mocking, saying, these men are full of new wine. Uh, and Peter uh, said, no, these men are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So Aaron's point there is a good one. Even the expression new wine can refer to something you could get drunk on. Right. You, okay. you follow that argument? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. And, um, we got to yeah, go, Brandon. We're up to any early early in fermentation or or grape juice, but but I see his point there. Okay. We're 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 uh, over time to take a break, and we need to move on with our subject. But we thank you for calling in tonight. And thank you for the work you do. I really appreciate. Thank you, Brandon. Brandon, thank you for thank you for being willing to to call and express your your view there, Brendan. And uh, we'll look forward to examining it some more. Thank you very much, and uh, appreciate your call. Appreciate uh, you listening. We're going to take a break and uh, get this week's uh, bullet point. When we get back, we'll continue the discussion. Uh, some things there we need to talk about, and uh, some we've got lots of material to go. So don't go anywhere. The verse Bible study will continue right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Abbott and Costello, the famous comedy team of the previous generation, are most remembered for their hilarious routine about baseball. It was a classic example of the confusion that results when people aren't communicating on the same wavelength. It's not uncommon even today to hear people remark, who's on first? An allusion to the comedy duo when confronted with a confusing situation. This brings to mind some lessons we need to learn, lessons concerning our efforts to teach the Bible to lost people. It's very possible that we will begin teaching folks at a level they are not prepared to receive. We ought to be careful about assuming that a student knows certain fundamentals. If we start with a faulty foundation of knowledge, we are certain to run into difficulty as we try to move our students on to the things that are hard to be understood, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. We should follow the example of Philip, who determined his student's level of understanding and then, quote, began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus, Acts 8, verse 35. We need to be sure that we are using Bible words in Bible ways. If we are careless in this matter, we are opening the door to unsound conclusions. For instance, if we talk about the birth of a baby and refer to it as a miracle, we may later be confronted by the argument that all the true Bible miracles can be dismissed with a natural explanation. A birth is, in fact, a marvelous thing, but it's not a miracle in the biblical sense. Only the virgin birth of Jesus would be accurately proclaimed as a miracle. So again, we must learn to be careful with terminology. Finally, we should be cautious about using phrases and jargon that are very familiar to us, but may leave a student in utter confusion. It would be a shame to waste a good teaching opportunity simply because we weren't careful about analyzing our students' ability to comprehend the message. There is, quote, a time when you ought to be teachers, Hebrews 5, verse 12, and good teachers know their students. Pray that God will help us find the good and honest hearts and that he will give us wisdom to use every opportunity to the fullest. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name's Jeffrey Vernon. I'm 13, and this is the Virtual Bible Study. That was me five years ago. Now I'm 18, and I still love listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the Virtual Bible Study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. We want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College <clears throat> I'm getting choked up about it, but it's this way every week. <laughs> the College U Church of Christ brings you the Virtual Bible Study. I'm glad that you're listening. And uh, we encourage your comments anytime, questions at collegeu.com. If you are like Brendan and listen to us via iTunes, via the podcast, and you hear something that you want to comment on, but uh, we're not live anymore, we'll still take your comments. We'd like to hear from you. Just let us know you're out there listening. Uh, We'd like to hear from you on the program. Uh, Send us an email anytime, questions at collegeu.com. Again, I want to thank Brendan for calling us uh, from DeLonga. 
Dahlonega. Dahlonega, Georgia. And I uh, appreciate him for taking the time to express his uh, his understanding. Uh, we do differ with that, but we do we, we, we need to hear the other side. Um, I think his most powerful argument that he made there was on the new wineskins and the old wineskins. I mean, I, I, and I see exactly where he's going with the idea that Jesus wouldn't use a, necessarily a sinful but, reference. But uh, Jesus was basically... T- they're talking about the change in system that was yeah. about to come about. Yes. The replacing of the old law and the old system with the, with his new will and and his new spiritual kingdom. Yes. And uh, he's, he's referencing new things and old things. And uh, you don't put new things into old things. You don't you don't try to combine them. Yeah. They don't go together. They don't go together. Yeah. And and. So what about the new wine and old wineskins? Well, there, there's, there are different explanations. One of them could be that you put the new wine in the old wineskin, that old wineskin would have, you know, Jesus' reference to the Pharisees' doctrine as leaven, you know, and it is a corrupting influence. And uh, there, one potential explanation is you put the, the new wineskin into the old wine, uh, old, the new wine in the old wineskin, well, there's that, Corrupting old the, the, the residue yeast, there. The, the yeast spores are in there from the old wine yeah. that would begin to ferment the new wine. And therefore, the new wine goes bad, busts the, the wine skins, and uh, and the wine is destroyed. Yeah. So you, the, the idea is you put new wine in new wine skins that would be uh, sanitary and, and clean, and you could prefer It would actually wine. prevent fermentation or at least slow it down significantly rather than accelerating it by putting it into an old wine. That's one, that's one explanation. And so Jesus was actually using that. And, again, that was a known – that was something the Jews would have known of. And he was basically – but his point in that was don't combine the new with the old. Yeah, and uh, Eric uh, referenced this, this – uh, the, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 – uh, and I believe Eric referenced it in errors. Well, we'll get to that in the next question. But f- before we do that, you had five ways that we could preserve wine. Yeah, You're not going to be yeah. able to describe them in, in length because we're running out of time. But just yeah, quickly. Real quickly. Uh, uh, grape juice. This comes from Bacchiochi's uh, book in which he lists these five means of preserving unfermented grape juice. And by the way, uh, Aaron in an email said he just he, – I, I want to read that in a minute. But he said he just couldn't see that in, in anything that he read from antiquity. But this man in the book Wine in the Bible, Samuel Bacchiochi, uh, gives significant documentation to these conclusions that they had five means of, of preserving unfermented grape juice uh, – Grape juice contains principally, uh, composed principally of sugar and gluten. Mm-hmm. The decay of the gluten, he says, affords the necessary conditions for the reception and growth of yeast germs. In the presence of yeast, sugar is converted into alcohol. That's where the intoxicating principles, uh, properties come from. Men of antiquity discovered these properties and were clever in devising means to work with these particular properties. And so how'd they do it? Well, one was gluten separation. Gluten's found in the lining of the skins and in the envelope of the seeds. Careful extraction of the juice would allow the sweet wine to be captured without disturbing the gluten. And, uh, I was reading about this, and when they put the wine into the wine press, just just some juice would ooze out of the grapes and be collected, and that was called the sweet wine. Mm. Obviously, there was there the gluten hadn't been ruptured yet in the skin and in the seed envelope. And so there would be some wine that could be kept in unpreserved state. Okay. Uh, even after the grapes had been pressed or trodden, the gluten concentrated in the pulp and could be removed by filters. Okay. So gluten separation, moisture removal. 
The moisture is essential to fermentation by drying grapes and then re-soaking in water to produce drink was mm-hmm. one way that they were able to have yeah. fresh grape juice after long after the harvest. Yeah. Another way was boiling, and that was common. Make and, a syrup out of it. Yeah, yeah, you can take a syrup uh, and you can leave uh, it out. Uh, on the... Highly successful means of keeping. And then what you did is you rehydrated the yeah. syrup when yeah. you got ready to drink the, okay. the juice. Okay. Air exclusion. Air is also necessary for the fermentation process. And the ancients were known to bury vessels in the earth or to sink them in water to preserve the juice in unfermented state. Temperature reduction. Uh, You've got to have temperatures got to be at a certain level for fermentation to occur. And ancients were known to uh, use cold springs and natural cold weather uh, to slow down the fermentation process. Mm-hmm. And then there was something called sulfur fumigation. By exposing wine to sulfur fumes, oxygen was absorbed, which would then prevent the fermentation. And sometimes in ancient sources you read about smoked wines, and that was a reference to that process that they use again, to prevent fermentation and preserve the juice in unfermented form. Again, now, I want to read uh, something that Aaron said about this. I, I, I've i learned better than to argue with Aaron's scholarship because he's, he's excellent and he's usually always got great points to make. Uh, but he, he said he thinks this is hard. He said, when I was in Knoxville years ago, I read a book on the subject which was in the library at the church building. I bet it was this one. He said, I think it was a thesis from Harding. Perhaps the author's name was Jeffcoat. Maybe so. I don't know. He says, uh, since I was in college town with a major college library, I went to, to look up lots of the cited references from the authors of antiquity who were quoted in an attempt to prove that the ancients had lots of ways to preserve wine unfermented. Unfortunately, when I went and looked at those references, my conclusion was that they were quoted out of context and did not actually say what the author claimed that they said. I would note here that this was not the conclusion I had hoped to reach. Instead, the ancients, I recall Pliny in particular, seemed to be talking about how to keep wine from souring, not how to keep it from fermenting. And Jeffcoat said that some words were references to this unfermented juice when I could clearly find them used in context of fermented wine. So most of his arguments fell apart pretty quickly when I looked at the original sources. Uh, he says, let me give one example of a method people claim that the ancients used to keep wine from fermenting. I've heard people say that one can take juice, seal it in an airtight cask, Put it someplace cool like a river to preserve it as juice. You can, in fact, find ancient authors who talk about preserving wine in this way, but they do not say that they preserve it unfermented. For comparison, what do wine lovers do today with their collections? They seal the wine in airtight bottles and store it in a cool, humid, dark place. That does not mean that it's unfermented when it's opened. When an ancient author says that he put wine in a cask in the river, there's absolutely no reason to think he's talking about juice. My conclusion is that there were there's very little evidence that the ancients preserved wine for long periods in unfermented state. Maybe you have some new evidence, and the uh, explosion of Internet information since my grad days in school might mean that the search is easier. Uh, he says, furthermore, considering only the Bible, I can find references to lots of steps in the winemaking process. The vineyards, the harvesting, the treading of grapes, the decanting, the leaves, the bottling are all mentioned. What I can't find is any reference to these methods of preservation. There's no reference to the huge fire pits that would be required to boil a harvest down to paste or anything like that. But the winemaking process is cited so often in the Bible, it's hard to understand why there's no mention of the steps required to render the wine unintoxicating, if that's what was commonly done. My conclusion from reading Pliny and others is that it was not commonly done. Uh, again, 
this book, I, I would, it's got just an overwhelming bibliography. Now, again, Aaron's an excellent scholar, and I have not done what he did to try to actually go to these cited sources to see if they're being referenced accurately. Uh, but this Bakiochi in his book, Wine in the Bible, does reference plenty. Uh, he, he mentions, uh, uh, Josephus. He mentions, a, a Columella, uh, who wrote on agriculture and agricultural practices. Um, he, he references that guy a lot. Um, it just seems, uh, he mentions Virgil, um, there are just several references to uh, that kind of source. And, again, I haven't done what Aaron did. I, I have not gone to those sources and tried to ferret them out myself. So I, 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 And I respect Aaron's scholarship, so he may be right that some of those are, are not accurately used. But I, I just couldn't comment further on that. All right. Let's get on to your next question. Uh, you said uh, wanted to know people's opinion on Jesus making intoxicating wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. That was also one uh, that uh, Brendan uh, references that Jesus, uh, the wedding, would have alcoholic wine. Along those lines, uh, back to the old wines, new wine, old wineskins. Jesus there used the word wine that was not fermented, new wine uh, in old wineskins. So Jesus is showing non-fermented wine there. You've got problems on your side. My battery's gone dead. Your battery is dead. Oh boy, you're you're in trouble. Um, we're up against another break, but uh, um, you referenced. Uh, we'll, let's take the break. We'll get back. We got to go to Jesus in the wedding feast, um, and we've got uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. We'll yeah, I'm not sure done. we're going to get done. All right, we'll get back uh, on the other side of the break. We'll go to the top of the hour. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Most Americans think they're smarter than everyone else in the country. 55% of Americans think that they are smarter than the average American, according to a new survey by you.gov. A humble 34% of citizens say they are about as smart as everyone else, while only 4% say that they are less intelligent than most people. Men, 24%, are more likely than women, 15%, to say that they are, quote, much more intelligent than the average American. White people are more likely to say the same than Hispanic and black people. The results are not surprising. Western cultures have a habit of inflating their self-worth, past research has shown. That information is via the National Journal. The Word of God says in Romans 12, verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Broadcasting around the world with truth that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program, coming to the top of the hour, talking about Christians and alcohol. Can it be consumed? Uh, what, is the Bible, what does the Bible say? Jesus and the wine and the wedding feast. You so, said, the okay, Jesus and the wine at the wedding feast. Uh, remember John chapter 2, verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the, wine, the water that was made and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew it. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when the men have drunk well, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of miracles which Jesus did in Cain of Galilee. 
Jesus took, if you if you study that text, Jesus made what would be the equivalent of dozens of gallons of, of this wine that's referenced. They, they were out of wine. Uh, his mother approached him there and, and uh, uh, suggested that he could do something to alleviate the embarrassment of running out of wine at the wedding feast. Uh, and so Jesus uh, had had them take uh, six water pots. They contain two or three firkins apiece. If you if you do some study on the measuring uh, there, this would have been significant gallons upon gallons of this wine that Jesus made. Uh, if the argument is, you know, that they had drunk it all up and they were drunk. Then Jesus made gallons more of wine to supply to men who were already drunk. Uh, I, I just think that the, they had drunk a lot, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, and he, he said, when men have well drunk, you give them worse stuff. I really think that they, all that that's saying is if you come, if I invite you to my house for, for steaks and we're cooking out on the grill and we got steaks for everybody and then Steve shows up with his family. I got no more steaks, so I put some hamburgers on. And then after we just about got that all ready, another bunch of people shows up. Now all I've got is hot dogs. But you you serve your best first, and then if you have to go to lesser quality stuff, you do that. And that's really all that's being expressed there in John chapter 2. The the real argument is, would Jesus have supplied gallons more of wine to men who were already intoxicated? And that's just completely contrary uh, to everything we know about Jesus, because again, remember what we said earlier. Everybody agrees that drunkenness is a sin. So if if, if, if you're going to take that from John two, these men had already drunk well. They'd already drank a lot. They were already drunk. Yeah. Jesus gave them more wine. Yeah. Get them more drunk. Well, I mean, if we're going to be consistent and say everybody agrees drunkenness is a sin, then we have Jesus contributing to the sin of these people. And I just don't think that, that that's a fair conclusion. We have conclusion. email responses on both sides of the issue. Aaron says he disagrees uh, about it being uh, alcoholic wine. He thinks it was not, both because of quantities involved and the principle that Jesus would not have made something harmful when he had the option to do otherwise. There would be no pressing reason to deliberately create fermented wine, so it's unwarranted to conclude that he did. Eric, Aaron says no. Eric, on the other hand, Eric uh, says that it was fermented wine. Jesus made fermented wine. Here's his response. The text doesn't specify whether it was fermented or not. Jesus' observation in Luke 5:39 sheds light on what was considered good wine, and it was the old kind. So Eric concludes that Jesus did make fermented wine. He references Luke 5, verse 39. With all due respect, Eric, he's taken uh, Luke 5:39 completely out of context and completely misapplied it because Jesus is not saying that the old wine is the good stuff. He's saying, uh, as he can, this is the parallel passage to the one that Brendan referenced, old versus new, how Jesus is the new, the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish way is the old. You don't put the new piece of garment on the old, uh, on the old cloth, etc. In verse 39, he says, and no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, Jesus is the new. Jesus is better. Jesus is not saying that the old wine is better. What he's saying here is, and some translate, some uh, manuscripts have the word good instead of better. Jesus is saying people, when they drink old wine, think this is okay. This is, this, I can, this is, this is good. They don't, are not motivated to go for the new stuff, which is better. 
because they think the old is good enough. But Jesus is saying he's better, he's the new wine, and they should be looking to him not to be just satisfied with the old uh, Jewish system. Okay. So, so Jesus, the good stuff is not the old wine in this context. The good stuff is the new wine, and Jesus made the good stuff. Because Jesus was the new. He was the new. And that, that, thus, if we, if, we, if we take Eric's interpretation of that, and that the old wine is the good stuff, then why would we want Jesus? Because he's the new in verse 39 of Luke, of Luke 5. Okay, that, that's a good explanation. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that before. Okay. All right. Um, but, oh, we're, we're, we're missing some comments in the chat room. Uh, All right, we're uh, going to miss some of that, I think, tonight. Yeah, uh, in regards to these preservation methods, Aaron said, I've heard all those methods proposed. Some of them don't really actually work for long periods. For example, air exclusion. Fermentation takes place in two stages, aerobic followed by anaerobic. If you expose the juice to air for long enough to, to tread it out, collect it, and bottle it, perhaps not all at the same day, then there's no reason why anaerobic fermentation without air could proceed. Air exclusion won't work, he says. Uh, B. Jones in the chat room says, as someone who works in the wine world, the only way I know to prevent any fermentation would be keep the skin intact or to somehow prevent the yeast on the skin from touching the juice. And that's what they tried to do, in fact. Uh, uh, actually, Brendan, they could. I agree with you that uh, – oh, B. Jones must be Brendan who called in. It is, Brendan. Okay, okay. Uh, actually, Brendan, they could. I agree with you that Jesus drank something called wine, but I don't agree with you that oinos must mean fermented drink. There's plenty of scholarship to show that it refers to the whole spectrum of great products, and you can't tell by looking what it is. Uh, so the fact that he drank something from the grape doesn't really prove much. Uh, Brendan says, I want to make sure, make clear, I'm not condoning drunkenness, but but wine can be consumed without leading to drunkenness, just as food can be consumed without leading to gluttony. Uh, Aaron says, one thing I learned in reading Pliny is that he believed that there were some grapes that did not ferment, and even in talking about those wines, he said that the aged ones were better. So the quality wasn't related to strength, because Pliny said that aged wine had better flavor, even when he believed that it was not intoxicating. The old wine is better argument has nothing to do with alcohol. But again, I think the context uh, dictates that the new wine is the best, is the better wine there. Jesus is comparing himself to the new wine. He's the new wine, so it would have to be better. So it's just, you know, when you have the old stuff, you're satisfied with it, and you're not compelled to look for something better. I think that was the the problem that the the Jews were faced with in that day. Okay, I'm going to cover a couple of our questions real quickly. Uh, The elders were told, the qualifications elders, 1 Timothy 3, or that they were not to be given to wine. Qualifications for deacons in the English, the King James Version, for instance, says not given to much wine. So elders not given to wine seems like a total prohibition. Deacons not given to much wine. Actually, the word there is addicted to. Elders are not be addicted to wine. Deacons are not be addicted to much wine. You know, there's really, there's no, there's no real difference in meaning. Yeah. Uh, but an illustration that I've used, I've probably used it on the virtual Bible study before. When you kids were little, we'd get you ready to go to church. Mm-hmm. Get your church, we used to call it, get your church clothes on. Right. We get your church clothes on, and then you all would say, well, can we go out and play until, until we leave? And we say, yes, but don't get all dirty. Right. When I said don't get all dirty, it was not a license to get halfway dirty or get dirty up to your waist. Yeah. You know, and and I really think that expression "not given to much wine" is of that same nature. It's it's not saying you can drink a little wine, just don't drink a right. lot of it. Okay, all right. But, uh, so I don't think, and I really think that a study of the, of the grammar there suggests really no difference in meaning whatsoever. Yeah. 
And then what about the question that Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and an often infirmities. This is First Timothy 5 and verse 23. First Timothy 5 verse 23. Uh, Paul said a very familiar verse, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that verse is often used to, to, to condone drinking wine moderately or social drinking. And I just don't see that in that verse at all. What we have here is Timothy, who was a faithful Christian of the first century. What it proves, actually, is that the normal practice of a faithful Christian in the first century was to drink no wine at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to know what's proved there, what's proved is Timothy's normal practice, which mm-hmm. was to drink none at all. Mm-hmm. Paul said, drink a little for uh, your stomach's sake, your often infirmities. He said, take a little medicinally. What does that prove? Well, well I, it, I think it proves, first of all, again, it proves that he didn't normally drink any at all. It proves that you could take some if it was for a, a legitimate medicinal purpose. Yeah. I think that would also, a, a conclusion that we would draw from that, I think it would be okay to take narcotic drugs if it was prescribed by a doctor for a legitimate medical purpose. But that's not to say that it would be okay to take narcotic drugs all the time mm-hmm. for recreational purposes. Okay. So in other words, this, I think we would use that to say it's okay to take medicine if you need it, if the doctor says so. Yeah. Don't take it if you don't need it. Yeah. Don't take it if it's not a legitimate need. I, yeah. I don't see how First Timothy 5.23 does anything to answer the question about social drinking. No, it doesn't. It, it, the only the only uh, authority you could get from that would be for the medicinal purposes. And you could, uh, well, we at least see one Christian here who was abstinent in his behavior. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. And we're just about out of time. Real quickly, what's your best argument Uh we just don't have time to deal with that. Uh, Tell you what, we could uh, we could put it to our listeners. Maybe our listeners would uh, like to chime in. I, I, the, the passage that I was going to use that I think makes the best case against drinking at any level is First Peter four verse three. We're going to have to leave it to our to our students to do your own research on this. Randy did the uh, Randy Randy uh, Randy mentioned that way earlier mm-hmm, in the chat room. First mm-hmm. Peter four verse three. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. Peter basically saying we wasted enough time doing this stuff. We don't do this stuff anymore. People think we're weird because we don't do this stuff anymore. And he mentions excessive wine, revelings, and banquetings. Do a word study on those three. They are all a level of drinking that is less than drunkenness. There's a word for drunkenness, and these three levels, in sort of in descending order, suggest a level of drinking less than drunkenness, but still condemned. Excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and the word banquetings in particular suggests drinking without reference to quantity. Uh, Drinking without reference to amount, not necessarily excessive. The word is potos. R.C. Trench says that it means drinking not uh, not excessive. There's really uh, uh, without reference to amount, not necessarily excessive. And I think that's the word that I would hang my hat on to say Peter was condemning drinking of alcohol at any degree. All right, we've got one more passage that we need to deal with before we conclude. Romans 14, verse 21. Eric referenced this in his, uh, his defense of, of alcohol consumption. He says, Paul indicated or included 
Wine is an example of something we must be willing to give up if it caused a brother to stumble. Romans 14, 21. The clear implication of that passage is that wine is not inherently sinful, but might cause someone to stumble. Does Romans 14, verse 21 leave us with the conclusion that wine is not inherently sinful? Oh, that's, a, that's a misuse of this context. Go back. Romans 14 is talking about liberties. We'd have to prove that drinking alcoholic wine is a liberty from other passages, and we and I think we can prove that it's not. But this drinking is not the drinking of wine uh, that would cause drunkenness. Uh, in the, he's talking about liberties, and in verse the, the big problem they were having was people didn't want to eat meat. We also read about this in First Corinthians eight and First Corinthians chapter twelve. But there was a problem. Among some Christians, if they went to the common markets and they bought bought meat, there was a possibility, perhaps even a probability, that the meat that was being sold in the common markets had come from the idols' temples. The meat had been offered in sacrifice to idols and then was subsequently being sold in the marketplaces, and the people were afraid that they'd be consuming meat that had been offered to idols, and therefore they abstained completely from eating meats. And so that's what's under consideration in Romans 14, not meat in general, not eating meat in general, but eating meat that may have been offered to an idol. Uh, and Paul says in verse 17, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He links the eating of meat and drink. The eating of meat was the meat offered to idols. The drink was the drink offerings that had been offered to idols. And so in verse 21, when he says it's neither, it's good neither to eat flesh, that which has been offered to the idol, or to drink wine, that which has been offered as a drink offering to the idol, is neither good to eat flesh offered to the idol, nor to drink wine offered to the idol, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. He's not talking about wine drinking in general. There's talking, some prudes out there who think you shouldn't drink alcohol, so I'm not going to. It was in reference to the yeah, idol. Yeah, it was all in reference to the idol. That's what the whole context is about. All right. And so the, the, the drink that he's saying you might abstain from is the same as the meat that he says you might abstain from. That was that which had been offered to idols. It's not talking about meat and drink in general. All right. Well, we've had we haven't gotten nearly as far as we wanted to, but uh, well, we've t- we've touched a lot of bases, but maybe not very thoroughly. <laughs> maybe if our listeners, uh, and those listeners who are listening in the podcast, if you've got comments, maybe we can uh, roll it into another yeah, another week. We can, we can revisit it now. Next week, though, we week we already we have are, an interview set up. So maybe with two a, weeks with a Christian we... with a man who's now a Christian, a true faithful Christian who, who's been converted out of Islam. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So if if you've got comments, you think we need to discuss it farther. Send those in by all means, and uh, maybe in two weeks, if we've got enough interest, we can continue the discussion on uh, drinking of alcohol. But our conclusion is, from the scriptures, uh, that uh, alcohol should be avoided. Uh, James in South Africa commented on that. He <coughs> agrees as well. He uh, he says that, uh, well, and then we also got a comment in the, in the chat room uh, from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. We didn't get into any of those uh, discussions from Proverbs tonight. Not our authority today, but certainly do establish some principles that we can use to make a decision. So, well, Dad, thank you for the time tonight. Good discussion. Thanks. A fast we one. Went fast. And Steve has been behind the controls all night. And Steve, you did an excellent job. Flawless execution. Thank you for. Well, Steve's already said that next time he's going to be he's going to be cool as a cucumber. So we'll have to hold him to that. Okay. That, hopefully, there will be a next time in the Good. future. Good. Thank you for being here, Steve. Thank you for joining us on the discussion. We hope you benefited and and uh, from our discussion of God's Word, and we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.